The real test is seeing how fast I can turn to the book of Ruth here. Uh, let me start my timer. Uh, fun fact while I'm turning there, it's actually uh, tomorrow marks the 10 year anniversary of Olivia. Or, I'm sorry, two year, <laughs> two, year, two year anniversary since Olivia and I got married. And um, I wish it was 10, right? Um, and that actually means that next week is the two-year anniversary of us uh, coming to Crossway here. Um, but for those of you who have uh, had a chance to get to know me um, over the last two years, perhaps uh, you've been able to know that I know a lot of useless information. Maybe you guys do too. Uh, for instance, uh, I know, um, just not even looking this up beforehand, I know that a, an eagle's nest can weigh up to two tons. I know that a clam can, uh, can live up to 150 years. I know that the total number of children a woman has ever given birth to is 69, which is a lot of uh, quadruplets and triplets if you think about it. And then also, I know that the average person will spend about one-third of their life uh, sleeping. These are uh, relatively uh, simple questions with simple answers. It's easy for me to articulate them, but uh, if you ask me how many times that these, uh, th this information has actually come in use for me, the answer is zero. Like, I've never like, gotten out of a bind because I knew how long clams live, right? But as we begin to ask the, uh, more complex questions, so do uh, the answers get a little more complex. They, uh, uh, they can tend to be pretty technical. For instance, if someone was to ask me the relationship between uh, God's sovereignty and free will, that would take me a little bit more time for me to give you an answer. It's not something that I have a perfect answer right off the bat. Um, and you might even leave that conversation with a few more questions than what you started with. And my dad had a good uh, solution to this. Whenever I asked my dad a pretty tough question, he would just say, Nick, I'll tell you when you're older. Okay. It was actually pretty clever because I didn't know if he just didn't know the answer himself, but now in hindsight I think that uh, he actually knew that no matter what answer he gave me, it was probably going to be a little uh, you know, above my head. For instance, I once asked my dad uh, how the streetlights know how to automatically turn on at night and how they know when to turn off in the morning. And this answer requires like, an understanding of photovoltaic cells, resistors, and electromagnets. And so if he had given me that technical answer, I would not have been able to process that. I was probably in first grade. But if he gave me an oversimplified answer, that wasn't going to be helpful either. And so his answer was, I'll tell you when you're older. He never did, by the way. So, Dad, if you're listening to this, at some point, I still am looking for the answer to that. Um, but when we come to the book of Ruth, um, the author invites us on this journey with Naomi to uh, answer and kind of raise up a few complex questions. Um, in chapter 1, as we just read there, uh, I think we're invited to ask things like, what hope is there for Ruth? Has God abandoned her just as he seems to have abandoned Israel? Can any of her hardship be turned around and used for good? Is God just? And instead of saying, I'll tell you when you're older, the author says, let me tell you, let me tell you now. And so we've walked through most of the book of Ruth so far. So now we get to the end, and naturally we expect to have some of, our, uh, some of these questions answered. And so right off the bat, I want to, I want to propose to you this morning what I think is uh, the author's main and big idea for this last section of Ruth. Uh, the big idea, uh, hopefully it will come on the screen here, is this, that God will redeem Naomi and Israel 
through the seed of Boaz and Ruth the Moabite. God will redeem Naomi and Israel through the seed of Boaz and Ruth the Moabite. Now, at the surface, uh, this main idea doesn't really seem to give us a satisfactory answer to the questions that we just raised, and that's actually precisely my point. Because a technical answer is going to be too complex for us to understand and really retain, and an overly simplistic answer like the one we just gave is going to be uh, more towards the end of unhelpful. And so what I want to do is I want to let the details of the story this morning sort of inform this main idea, and hopefully it will bring a lot of color to that. And um, I, I think that if we let the details really sink in, that this, uh, this main idea in the, the book of Ruth will prove to be profitable uh, for us for many years to come. And thankfully, the, narr- uh, the author has actually given us a narrative to help us remember this. Um, so th- the reason why I had us read chapter 1 again is uh, I think it's very useful to take a look at where we were and then now take a look at where we have come over the last uh, four chapters. Uh, we call this a top and tail analysis, and if you've been a part of some of the text groups, uh, this is something that we often use often, or often use often, often use to better demonstrate uh, the main idea of the book. Um, and it's helpful here just to see how far God has uh, come in, in helping and redeeming Naomi and the nation of Israel. So what I want to do this morning is I want to first quickly give you some of my initial observations from where we started in chapter 1. Uh, this is meant to be sort of a review. And then we're going to kind of look through the last section of the narrative together and see how the initial situation has changed. And then finally, we're going to see how this sort of informs our theology and provides some practical instruction uh, for us today. So I've put together uh, what I think is a helpful uh, uh, kind of table here uh, to help track our observations. I have five. The the left column is going to be chapter one, and the right-hand column is going to be chapter four, which we'll get to in a little bit. So let's just go in and, and dive into it and make some observations about chapter one. The first is this, that they start the book in a foreign land. The story begins with Naomi going to Moab, the enemy and oppressor of Israel. And they're supposed to find rest in the land that God has given them. This has been a major focal point for uh, the Old Testament up until this point. God has uh, made promises to Abraham. He led them out of Egypt and into the land. They were supposed to experience God's blessing in the land. But now we see that people aren't even in the land to experience God's blessing. And uh, kind of a silly example I came up with was uh, when Dan's out of town, it just so happens that five, like five or so softball bats are just like arriving at his house at once. And they're kind of expensive, so he usually calls Kirk or I to go like, pick it up at, like, off the front porch. And the reality is that he's not there to experience the blessings that these softball bat companies are trying to deliver to him. He's not home. I also know that when he's out of town, he really like, he misses his purple mattress. I don't think the guy gets a wink of sleep when he's gone. And I just imagine when, that, when he comes back home, he just breathes a sigh of relief. That finally, he's home. He can get some rest, right? I think that's kind of the deal that we see here. We're supposed to, the people of Israel are supposed to experience God's rest in the land, but they're not even in the land to experience it. So it's one thing to disobey God and not experience uh, God's blessing like we see in, in the book of Judges. Now it's another thing to not even be in the land designated for God's blessing. 
Number two, we see that Naomi is without a means to provide for herself. We, we of course, know that her husband and her two sons are dead. There's nobody left to protect her, nobody left to work a field. Uh, there's no one left to work a trade, no one left to protect her. So even if she does make it back home to Bethlehem, uh, there's also a chance that there's no one left to redeem her either. Uh, thirdly, uh, she's bitter and, and empty. We saw in uh, verses uh, 21 and 22 uh, that Naomi is still grieving for the loss of her husband. She's beginning to think that maybe God has been unjust to her. Is God even listening? How can a God be just if he lets her husband and her sons die? These are serious questions. So that's kind of where Naomi starts. Let's also look at where uh, the nation of Israel starts in, the, in chapter 1. One, they have no king. As we left uh, the book of Judges, we saw that there was no king. There was moral chaos. They were fighting amongst themselves. There was division. So there really isn't much hope for Israel right now either. Number five, there's famine and hardship in the land. They're being oppressed by their enemies. If you remember the, the connection that Dan made uh, between uh, this, this book in Deuteron Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, uh, God said, if they do not obey, their fields will not bear fruit, their wombs will not bear children. They'll be oppressed by their enemies. So we, we see God's judgment upon the land. They're caught in what seems to be this endless cycle. So as we take a look at this left-hand column here, the situation is bleak for both Naomi and Israel at the start of the book. They seem to be a far cry from the promise of Abraham, which God says will make your uh, descendants um, uh, great, will uh, give you a land, I will make you a blessing to the nations, the kings will come from your line. How on earth is this going to happen given the situation right now? So let's read uh, uh, Ruth 4, uh, start, actually start in verse 9 today. Let's, uh, fourth nine through twenty two, and as we do, I just want you to pay attention to see how the situation has changed. So Ruth uh, four nine. Let's start there. It says, "Then, uh, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day." that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that has belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malone, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his, uh, from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So, after seeing Boaz's noble character in redeeming Ruth, uh, the, the Moabite, by the way, the townspeople will now pronounce blessing upon them. We see two aspects of this blessing. The first is that they ask the Lord to bless them just like Leah and Rachel. And now remember, Leah and Rachel were the ones who gave birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. They also say, 
uh, may their house be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore, uh, who, yeah, who, who Tamar bore uh, with, with Judah. And if you remember the, the story of uh, Tamar, uh, she marries a son of Judah, and that son, uh, her husband, dies. And so now we see that uh, Judah is uh, uh, somewhat responsible to ensuring that one of his other sons marry her as part of the, the Levite marriage vow. Long story short, he sort of falls short of doing so, and so it's not until uh, Tamar sort of takes matters into her own hands and sort of tricks Judah that she's able to secure an heir by him. But now we see a contrast, right? Well, with Tamar, she was uh, given, God blessed her through an unwilling individual. Now we see uh, Ruth being blessed by Boaz, who is willing to marry her and provide her with an heir. So how much more do we expect God to now bless Ruth? See, they use past realities, God's proven track record, to anchor their faith in his future work. Let's move on to now verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So as promised, Boaz marries Ruth, consummates the marriage, and Ruth becomes pregnant. Now, I think it's easy for us to kind of overlook uh, what's going on here, that the emphasis is that the uh, Lord is actually providing her with conception. If remember back from Ruth 1, uh, Naomi's uh, daughters, or uh, Naomi's sons, marry Orpah and Ruth. And uh, for a decade, they live in Moab. Not once do they give birth. And like we said, the, the audience probably sees this as God's judgment upon them. Now, this isn't to say that all people uh, who are experiencing uh, a barrenness are under God's judgment, right? But at least this, the context here seems to indicate that that is the understanding in this particular instance. But now that we see uh, the situation has been reversed, Ruth has become pregnant, and who is it attributed to? It's attributed to the Lord's work. Go on to 14 and 15 here. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who has more than seven sons, has given birth to him. So there's a number of interesting things that happen here. Imagine you're Ruth and you have struggled to, give, uh, to, to conceive in 10 years. And now you finally do. The, the child is born, and so you're sort of inviting your friends and family to come and see the child and sort of, I guess, expecting them to somewhat congratulate you. So they all show up, and they, they look right past you, and they go straight to Grandma. That would be kind of weird, wasn't it? Like, wouldn't it? Like, we would expect them to come and greet us. Congratulate us, but that's the point. The author is focused on Naomi this whole time. Also, look to see who the author refers to when he says that the Lord has not left Naomi without a redeemer. Is it Boaz or is it the child? Well, in verse 15, the people provide us with the description of the, of the kind of redemption that this person is going to bring. Says there, she's going to be, or this, this redeemer is going to be uh, a, rest, a restoration of life, a nourisher to Naomi in her old age. And who is going to give birth to him? Well, it's Ruth. The child is the redeemer, 
And some of you might be asking, well, I thought this whole time Boaz was the Redeemer. And that is correct in some degree, but he's more functioning as sort of an interim Redeemer, right? We, we saw last week that, uh, that Naomi uh, sells this field to Boaz as part of the redemption law. And now when the child becomes old enough, that field that she sold to Boaz will return to Obed in the year of Jubilee. Obed will take over Boaz's role for Naomi. So it's no wonder that uh, the, the, the women say a son has been born to Naomi because Obed will function for Naomi just like her sons would have. But also look at what the text says about Ruth. She is said to be worth more than seven sons. More than seven sons. That's more than what she had to begin with when she left Israel. So now everyone, no, no one is left with any grounds to say that God has forgotten about Naomi. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 now. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave, uh, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. There's a few additional things here. Uh, this word that the ESV translates as lap is probably more directly translated as bosom. But I think the ESV is trying to uh, more accurately communicate uh, to its audience what's actually going on here. They don't want uh, the audience or to interpret this as meaning as uh, Naomi adopted the child and became the child's wet nurse. That's not what's happening here. The author depicts Naomi as receiving this child in her arms and caring for it. I actually uh, babysat for the Bykowskis uh, this last weekend. And at one point, I had little baby Evelyn in my arms. I had her tight against my chest, and I was rocking her back and forth. I was caring for it. I tried this with Denali uh, the other day, and it just wasn't, my, my dog Denali, and it just wasn't the same, you know? <laughs> there was a lot of, like, moving around. Um, but that's the, that's the scene that we get here. Naomi is uh, receiving this child in uh, her arms. She sees it as precious. She's caring for it. But the, the author also shows us that this child has a broader significance, too. He zooms out and gives us a picture that this child is also to serve a different way. He will bring forth the line of David, God's chosen king. And this flows right into verse 18, this genealogy. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered, fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. God has not forgotten about Naomi, and God has not forgotten about Israel. And I think the, uh, the original audience sees the connection now. God promised Abraham that kings would come from his line, and now we see how he did it. David is the one anointed by God to unite the nation of Israel despite their disobedience. He's the one who's going to give them freedom from oppression from their enemies and bring peace to the land. So that's the narrative. Now I think we can uh, fill in this right-hand column and see how things have changed. 
Firstly, we said that they were in a foreign land, and now we see that they're in Bethlehem in Judah. The story of redemption is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So God's plan isn't complete until God's people are in his place. Now we see Naomi being returned to the land is actually God's blessing. Number two, we saw that she was without a means to provide for herself. Now she has Obed to care for her into her old age. Number three, she's bitter and empty, but now she's joyous and full. First we see there's rejoicing of the Lord by the people for this uh, for this child. And then the author also gives us that picture, that scene where Naomi is caring for the child. And we see that Ruth is uh, worth more than seven sons. Naomi has uh, thought that she returned empty, but now we see that she has left, or that she is now fuller than when she even left. Fourth, we see that Israel has no king. Now we see uh, that Obed is to be the one whom David's line is going to come from. The author provides us with a direct link to King David, the one who will lead them in righteousness. And then five, we see that they were experiencing famine and hardship in the land. Now we see that uh, in hindsight that under David's reign, there is a peace in the land. that He will uh, allow the nation to rule the nation in a way that allows it to prosper, right? So up until now, we've seen the judgment of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Now we see a picture that King David is going to be the one who's going to bring the blessing of these passages. Let's return back to our main idea then. God will redeem Naomi and Israel through the seed of Boaz and Ruth the Moabite. And so when we let the details of the story, hopefully uh, feed the, the information of our feed this main idea, hopefully it becomes a lot more clear on what is going on, and hopefully it becomes a lot more uh, useful to us. Let's take a look at Naomi. She, uh, she was broken. She had no hope. She was not cared for, and in the same way, we see Israel, as we ended the book of Judges, was broken. There was no one to lead, lead the nation. There was little hope. But now we see God is taking an a seemingly insignificant widow, her Moabite daughter-in-law, in in an insignificant town. Now we see God is providentially working to redeem the nation. So let us now consider some of the theological truths that uh, this passage teaches us today. I have two. The first one is that God delights in redeeming his people. This story, uh, I'm sorry, this story informs us of his character. No one is beyond God's redemption. What's interesting is that in the beginning of this book, we see that Naomi uh, sees her life as getting further and further away from God's, uh, God's redemption. But now we see that God this whole time has been pulling her closer. We titled this series, uh, Bitter to Sweet, the undercurrent of God's providence. And I just wanted to take a a few moments to explain uh, why we titled it that. Many of you probably know that an undercurrent is this flow of water uh, that's underneath the surface that's going the opposite direction. And the reason that they're dangerous is that sometimes they can be going up to five miles per hour, which is faster than an Olympic swimmer. 
Let me just go ahead and add that to the list of information I, I know. But that's the thing. That's like the power of these currents is so powerful that it's not hard to see how people get swept out to sea. They're dangerous. But when we see that principle applied to God's providence, it actually gives us assurance. Because we can't outswim the current of God's providence, and he seeks to redeem a people for himself. Christian, that is good news for you. We have a God who has revealed his will to us. We don't have to live every day thinking that the, the uncertainty of this day will triumph over us. No. We know that God is in control and that, he's, that, that death has already been defeated. There's no reason to worry about that. It should give us great assurance. The second point I think uh, the author is trying to communicate today is this, that God is the one who accomplishes his work of redemption, not us. In verse 14, we saw that uh, the people say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. And I think we tend to try to write our own redemption story. Uh, for instance, let's take a Elimelech and Naomi as an example. When things get hard, what do they do? They take matters into their own hand. They go to a foreign land, and what happens? They come back empty. Then in the book of Samuel, we see that the, the nation of Israel uh, wants to uh, elect a king so that they can become like the nations. They elect Saul, and what happens? Saul doesn't work out for them. God raises up a king after his own heart, King David. So the Lord demonstrates his providence when we have exhausted the possibility of ours. And I, I don't know about you, but I praise the Lord that I am not in control of my own redemption. Because if I were, I think it would like, it'd probably look like this. If, if, I, if I could write my own story of redemption, this is probably what it would look like. I would have all the money in the world. I wouldn't have to worry about financial problems. Everyone would love me. They'd probably call me Captain Matula if I could. <laughs> I'd have this, this personal butler who could make me all this Michelin star meals or something like that. But what does that sound like? It actually sounds like a path to arrogance and pride. A fulfillment of my every desire and uh, a striving to determine what's right in my own eyes. So praise the Lord that I'm not in control of my own redemption because I would destroy myself. But we praise the Lord that he is in control, right? He is at work conforming us into his image through the trials and sufferings that we experience. And what comes to mind is James 1, who is, uh, where it says, counted all Joy, my brothers, when we, can, um, when we face trials of various kinds. For the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be complete and perfect and lacking in nothing. But nonetheless, we still struggle to believe these truths. And I think we tend to have a reaction similar to Naomi when we face hardship. We begin to give up hope very quickly. Uh, for any of us who have experienced uh, habitual sin in our life, whether that's substance abuse, sexual sin, uh, anger towards your wife or resentment towards others, oftentimes it feels like there is no way to escape it. And surely if God was really in the business of redeeming his people, something would have happened by now. 
so we feel hopeless. We, this actually feel uh, actually tends to, tends to fuel our own uh, our own our own sinfulness. What happens is we begin to think, well, if God's not going to redeem me from this, why am I even fighting? May as well just indulge myself, right? For others, it's uh, uh, seeking redemption from hardship. The world just seems like it's against us. Whether it's the financial situation that never improves, the people who just continually let us down, the search for uh, a job interview, and even though everyone says that everyone is hiring right now, you just seem to be the only person who can't find or get an interview. And then when you do get an interview, what happens? That your car breaks down, and you can't even get there, so you're back to square one. The world just seems against us. But perhaps... Your situation is far, far worse. And you're thinking, man, if this guy up there, if he just knew the half of what I'm experiencing, he would not be saying these words right now. But even if that were the case, actually one thing that just comes to my mind in response to that is Hebrews 4, where it says that we now have a great high priest who lives to intercede for us, who now is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we also have the word of God that is living and active and, for, and of his authority. So the validity of what I'm saying isn't actually based in what I have experienced or not experienced. The validity of what I'm saying is actually based in God's story of redemption. I mean, look at what God has done all the way from Abraham to the promise, even though he tried to take the air into his own, his own hands. Then through Moses, who led the people out of uh, Egypt and through the wilderness, and despite their disobedience, God was patient. Then we see people like Rahab, the prostitute, who gets uh, redeemed. Then we see people like uh, Ruth and Naomi in this story who are redeemed. And that leads us to David, the adulterer, King Solomon, the idolater, the people in exile for their disobedience, God is still working to redeem them. All the way to the ministry of Christ, to the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. We see that God is surely in the business of redeeming his people. And that's why I said at the beginning here that if we can get a handle on this book of Ruth, it is forever profitable for us because it shows us what redemption looks like. Not only for Naomi as an individual, but then it shows us the link. It shows us that her redemption is linked to King David, who redeems the nation of Israel, which is then linked to the coming of Christ. And that should actually give us great confidence that the Lord's at work, even when we don't understand it. And it should cause us to turn away from our bitterness and be quick to trust in the Almighty God who is carrying you along in providence. But let me be clear, though, I, I don't think we're supposed to walk away from this story thinking that our, our, our earthly hardship will, will be resolved in the next couple days. In fact, we see that scripture says that the opposite is true. When we join ourselves to Christ, we actually are going to experience more suffering and hardship because we're fighting against the current and the pattern of this world. We see in the Old Testament that God is sold out in redeeming the people, his people. We see that he's sold out for redeeming his people in the New Testament. 
And so where does our joy come from? Our joy comes from knowing that God is in control, not that our hardship is ended. And I assure you that there is a deep-set joy in our souls. When we face hardship, when we face uh, 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 the world is against us, and instead, instead of falling away, we say, I stand knowing that all is mine. Christ has redeemed me. Atonement is sure. The, the, the future is sure. I'm a fellow heir with Christ. The price has been paid. So as we uh, enter into the Lord's Supper today, we should find great assurance in what it symbolizes. God has taken great lengths to redeem his people, culminating in the, in the giving of his own begotten Son. So we see this, this Lord's Supper is a pictured promise of that reality. A reminder that God is in control. He's redeeming his people, and that's where the book of Ruth points us, our greater redemption. So as we take the, uh, the Lord's Supper, we proclaim our own unworthiness, and actually the worthiness we can now claim through Christ by faith alone. But because uh, the Lord's Supper is this pictured promise of salvation, uh, that means that it's specifically for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and received this salvation. So if you're here this morning, not yet a believer, we are very thankful that you are here. We hope to connect with you uh, afterwards, but we just ask that today that you refrain from taking the elements. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says that uh, we are to partake the Lord's Supper in a worthy and appropriate way, lest we, lest we drink and eat judgment upon ourselves. So the Lord's Supper is for all those who are living in repentant faith in conformity with the gospel. This doesn't mean that we're sinless, right? This, this Lord's Supper is actually assuming that we do have sin, but it also assumes that, we have, uh, that we're now walking in step with the gospel in repentance. So if that's you, we invite you to the Lord's table. So at, at this time, we'll come forward and uh, we'll take the elements and we'll bring it back to our chair as we sing this final song, and then we'll partake together. Christian, the blood, the blood of Christ has been, has been poured out for you. He has been bestowed the name above all names and now sits at the right hand of God. Be assured that he is risen and he lives to intercede for us. And Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given things, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.